It said that of all the topics the Buddha spoke about, that he spoke more about right effort than any other topic. Right effort or balanced energy is one of the eight factors of the Noble Path, one of the ten paramis, one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the five powers, one of the five faculties, one of the four means of accomplishing your purpose, and all four of the four right efforts. (laughs) He liked lists. Now we might ask, why did the Buddha have to speak so much about right effort or balanced energy? Two reasons come to my mind. One is that the task we're engaged in to develop the qualities of the awakened heart and to disentangle the mind from all limitations is uh, a really far-reaching goal. And there are innumerable places along the way to get hung up. Knowing how to proceed in all of those situations, those potential ditches on the side of the road, requires just a vast range of technique, understanding, uh, skillful means in order to disentangle ourselves. And so the Buddha spoke to all those or many of those situations. And the second is that energy or effort is the root of all accomplishment. Whatever we achieve in the mundane world or whatever we realize in the spiritual dimension. The root of it is the effort, the energy that is applied in that direction. What I have noticed over the course of my years of practice is that everyone struggles to find balanced effort. And the journey to balance is a lot of imbalance which makes for really colorful stories. (laughs) Sometimes depressing stories, sometimes inspiring, but the most colorful stories seem to come from wrong effort. And the third conclusion I've kind of drawn is that there's no consensus on (laughs) what right effort is. What that means is that each one of us has to discover for ourselves what is right effort for us in each situation. And we can hear the stories and we can hear others' experiences, 
and we can hear the understandings that are helpful. But each one of us has to feel our way along the path and make those adjustments that bring us into balance. Ajahn Chah, one of Jack's teachers in Thailand, a monk in Thailand, he used to talk about how he guided monks and the lay people around him. He said, sometimes I, s- I know the path really well, and he said, sometimes I see somebody going down the path, and they're about to fall in the ditch on the left. And I say, go right, go right. <laughs> and at another time, I'll see somebody going down the path, and they're about to wander off into the ditch on the right. And I say, go left, go left. And it sounds contradictory. But in each situation, it was what was needed to come into balance. And so we, we're all familiar with the paradoxical, apparently contradictory instructions that we often get. You know, go left and go right at the right time. And that's what makes finding the balance of how much effort we apply and in what direction do we apply it? Such a, an enigma. And a kind of a, it's, it's, it's the dance of practice. The Bodhisattva, as Prince Siddhartha, lived in his father's royal palaces for 29 years, uh, indulging in the royal delights, which we can only imagine. <laughs> Something like, California, maybe. (laughs) And then he said, well, this isn't the answer to everything. He wandered off into the forest and lived like some uh, uh, anorexic uh, (laughs) ascetic that was just uh, barely eating a grain of rice a day to try to, you know, beat his body into submission to the mind or something. And he said, well, this isn't the way either. And after 29 years on one side and six on the other, he finally found the middle path, which was neither indulgent nor ascetic. Neither was it aggressive nor passive, but it was receptive and responsive. When the Buddha was near death in his fasting and the ascetic practices where his body was so emaciated and just tortured, he acknowledged to himself and anyone else who could hear that whatever pain and suffering it was possible to experience in a human body, he'd experienced it. And that whatever pain and suffering anyone had ever experienced in the past or ever would in the future, he'd experienced it. And he said, that's not the way. He didn't say you didn't have to experience that. 
He just said, that's not the way. <clears throat> In the midst of that striving, struggling, wrong effort, he had this memory come to mind. He remembered when he was a young boy sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree watching his father the king ritually plow the field to for abundant harvest. And when he was sitting there as a young boy he was very calm in the shade of the tree and very interested. And he entered a an exalted state of mind where he was really absorbed in that perfect balance of tranquility and alertness. And he remembered this and he said, he, he, he thought, maybe that's the way. Not the indulgence, not the asceticism, but this balance of being tranquil, relaxed, calm, and alert. Our challenge as yogis is to discover when we're indulging in pleasure, indulging in the known, indulging in habit, when we're a little bit lazy or a little too laid back and to you know tighten up a little bit to bring a little to bring our wings in a little bit and focus or to notice also when we're really caught in striving really trying to make something happen really looking for some you know not being just vigilant but being hyper vigilant and to recognize that and to just back off, loosen up, and to just float a bit. Finding that place in the middle between focus and float. The Buddha taught that there are four right efforts to be aware of in the practice. And the first is to avoid unwholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. <laughs> Just quickly, you know when you get a catalog in the mail? If you don't look, you don't raise the desire. That's avoiding unwholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. Okay? For example, the second is to overcome unwholesome mental states that have already arisen. We've seen a few of those today. The third is to develop wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And the fourth is to nourish, to maintain, to bring to fruition wholesome mental states that have already arisen. So I want to speak about these four right efforts 
so that we can begin to monitor our own practice, find how we're off balance, and recognize which effort needs to be cultivated in order to bring us into balance. Some of you who know me will wonder how in the world he, me, could ever give a talk on balanced effort. (laughs) Of the two of us, I'm the more the uh, warrior, and Kamala's the floater. (laughs) But I was asked to prepare this talk, so here it is. When we say to avoid unwholesome mental states not yet arisen, we need to define what unwholesome really means. What's unwholesome about the mind or mental state? I use this word, unwholesome, to refer to qualities of heart, qualities of mind that cause suffering, that cause me suffering, or cause anyone else suffering. Irritation, anger, frustration, greed, lust, uh, confusion, bewilderment, doubt. That's suffering. Both for me and for others, if I act it out. Wholesome, on the other hand, would be those mental states which lead to happiness for oneself or others. Love, kindness, tolerance, patience, acceptance, letting go, balanced mind, equanimity, tranquility, joy. We know from our practice, from our personal history, that the mind conditions our behavior. What's going on in the mind? Immediately and intimately conditions what we say, what we do. But behavior also conditions the mind. And it's helpful to understand this in practice because the first right effort is to avoid situations, people, places, events that are likely to arouse unwholesome mental states, to just avoid them. Here on retreat, we are cultivating this right effort a lot. We've just put ourselves in a situation where we're secluded, physically secluded from a lot of temptation, distraction, confusion, things that we have to react against or put up with. Just being here is like 24 hours a day of avoiding situations that are likely to provoke unwholesome (laughs) states of mind. That doesn't mean that there aren't some people here and some events here that provoke, but you know what it's like. You know how stressful it is, how agitating and irritating and 
difficult it is sometimes just to live your ordinary life because we can't avoid situations, people, events, the headlines, which cause fear, anxiety, stress, distraction. And so here on retreat, we're, we're, we're really avoiding a lot. Disengaging the mind from the sources of confusion. Now, if we just came to Silver Cloud, this center, and just hung out for a week, two weeks, month, without even practicing, we'd get a lot of benefit. We'd clear out and calm down and chill out and feel pretty good for a while, just being away from it all. But we're applying even more effort than that. I was listening to uh, an interview on public radio some time ago, and it was an interview with a poet whose poetry is used by a lot of therapists, evidently, uh, particularly with clients who have depression. And she was reading one poem, and one line really jumped out at me as being really right on. And in the poem she says, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> and what, what they mean is, watch your mind, guard your mind, because not everything that comes into your mind is a lovely, beautiful, wholesome state. Take your mindfulness with you when you go wandering around in your mind so that you really know what it is you're, what the feel of this neighborhood is. Upandita exhorted yogis in Burma to act as if you were deaf, dumb, blind, and sick when you're doing your practice. Now what that means is, deaf, don't listen around, dumb, don't speak, blind, don't look around, and as if you were ill. You know when you're ill, how carefully and slowly you move? Don't look around, don't listen around, don't speak around, move slow. Because it contains, it just contains the energy so that you can avoid, and that you can really uh, develop that awareness of what's going on in a moment-to-moment -moment basis. We say to guard your senses. Guard your senses from entangling with uh, disruptive, uh, agitating uh, experiences. Don't look around, don't listen around, don't move around. The quality of mind necessary for avoiding unwholesome situations, people, is a lot of compassion for yourself. To just step off the oppressive treadmill of distraction. Just get off. And to be willing to chill out, calm down, cool out. 
Not be in a hurry to catch up, to do more, to fill up your schedule. Even here, there's nothing to do except hear the bell, do the next thing. If you're sitting, hear the bell, walk. If you're walking, you hear the bell, sit. Hello. <laughs> and yet, I know, I, I've been on retreat. You can still have an agenda of things you've got to do today. You know? <laughs> Whether it's do your laundry, move your tent, you know, do this, do that, fill your water bottle. I mean, it's, it's just endless. <laughs> Compassion for yourself, be willing to chill out, let go. And to be really vigilant, to really look, to really notice what causes the mind stress, fear, agitation. You know, you know at Buckingham Palace they have these, the, the guards at Buckingham Palace? Passive, immobile, unsmiling, super vigilant. That kind of quality. You know, just not having to do anything, just pay attention. That's the quality we want. For that, the spirit of repetition is essential. You know, because so much of practice is doing the same thing over and over again. You know, like Groundhog Day, until you get it right. <laughs> How many times do we have to come in the door and sit down before we realize, oh, that's an area for practice too. How we make our sitting nest. How we open the door, close the door. Now, What's the purpose of all this effort? Why, why do we emphasize paying attention to the breath? Paying attention to your steps in walking. Is it so that you know what the breath is like? Is that the purpose? No, of course not. It's a technique. We want to be careful to use the tools and techniques for their purpose, but not to become a perfectionist technician. You know, if you take, you know, if you have a, um, a sharpening stone and a knife, and you hold the knife at the right angle, and you put a little water or oil on it, and you drag the knife over the stone at the right angle, at the right speed, with the right pressure, eventually you learn how to sharpen this knife. And you can get really good at it. You, every stroke can be right angle, right pressure, right speed. Boom, 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 boom. Now, what's the purpose of learning that technique? To learn how to sharpen the knife so that you can sharpen the blade right to nothing? That's not what you want. The purpose of learning how to sharpen the knife is so that you can cut the vegetables cleanly. So, the purpose of sharpening our attention, paying attention to the in-breath, the out-breath, the in-breath, and the out-breath. Is it to know the breath? No. It's to cut through the confusion, illusion, bewilderment, interpretation, uh, commenting about the breath and everything else that arises. It's to cut through illusion. So when your attention 
is called off the breath. And you start noticing thoughts and feelings and memories and, and energy and excitement and all kinds of things. Can you see it for what it really is? We don't have to hurry back to the breath. That's being a technician. Oh, I've got to be with the breath. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't cut anything with this uh, sharp attention. I better stay with the breath. No, it's to see things as they are. Just that's the way it is. And in spite of ourselves, we will. We may not like it, but we will see things as they are. When I first started practicing with Upandita in uh, 84, he, I was a layman at the time, and he heard that my name was Steve Armstrong. So he got a big kick out of Armstrong. He, he, every time I would come for an interview, and we were seeing him every day then, he would say, Mindstrong, Steve Mindstrong. Is your mind strong today? <laughs> every time he'd ask me, is your mind strong today? I didn't know what he was talking about. What do you mean, is my mind strong today? It's like, what do you mean, mind strong? It didn't. Do you know what he means? Is your mind strong today? Is your mind strong enough to open to, be with, and acknowledge this is the way it is? Because it takes a tremendous amount of strength mental strength to acknowledge fear, confusion, excitement, boredom, shame. It's really hard. It takes a tremendous strength of mind to open, to feel. Somebody was asking earlier today about the sense of uh, worthlessness, the sense of uh, Ineffectual, uh, you know, just why bother? Hey, you don't open to worthlessness unless you have a very strong mind, one that can withstand it, can feel it, and not get kind of blown out of the water with it. So this is the first right effort to avoid situations that provoke or stimulate unwholesome mental states. The second right effort is to overcome unwholesome mental states that have already arisen. Inevitably, in our practice, we are confronted with difficult events. The the boredom of the present moment, sometimes in in, in the moment we feel fear, loneliness, self-judgment, they're challenging. They're immediate, tangible suffering. It's already arisen. The boredom itself is an unwholesome mental state. Loneliness, fear, agitation. Sometimes we get caught in the past. A lot of regret, a lot of anger, shame, humiliation. Or we, we anticipate the future with anxiety, fear, doubt, dread. And these difficult mental states come. We can't avoid them. They come. 
and they come with an enhanced clarity because we've cleared our mind. We're, we're, we're working hard to have this very clear, precise, sharp attention. And we'd like it to be always directed towards calm, tranquil, love, light, peace, space, openness. But the other side of the mind wants to open too. Dread, despair, <laughs> fear, anxiety, restlessness, doubt, frustration. And so we see those states of mind equally clear. One image that's helpful in practice and that the Buddha used a lot to encourage yogis in their practice is to understand that when the mind is filled with these visitors to the mind that cause suffering, these distractions, these kilesas, the torments of the mind, in the Pali language they're called kilesas, the torments of the mind. When the mind is filled with them, the yogi needs to become a warrior because it's warrior-like energy that's needed to confront them, to not succumb, to not just kind of deflate and become a doormat for them, but to confront them. Now, you know that cartoon and that came out some time ago, we have met the enemy and it is us. We are not the enemy. These visiting forces known as defilements are the enemy. Now what's a warrior, really? A warrior is someone who develops the strength, the capacity, the skills to use the appropriate tools to protect, to defend, to defeat, to overcome the enemy in service to his higher, his or her higher purpose. This is not random violence. This is not just destruction. This is for a noble purpose. What is our noble purpose? Awakening. Disentangling the mind. Freeing the mind. Developing the compassion and wisdom to act in the world for the benefit of others. That's noble. If it takes warrior-like energy to do that, that's wholesome. That's noble. That's the agenda. Clearly, there are times in practice when we need fierce, determined energy. Bruce was asking about it this morning. Sometimes when, you know, you're just going under. So, you know, something's coming up and you're going down. And you're getting caught in whatever unwholesome state of mind. Fear, anger, sleepiness. Uh, self-judgment. Sometimes we can marshal that fierce determination that just says, 
I'm not going to succumb to this. You know, as I mentioned, grit your teeth, clench your jaw, push the tongue to the top of the mouth, and stand firm. Really, we don't need to create that much tension in the body. We just need to have in the mind that attitude that I can see this. I can acknowledge it. I can be with it. I don't need to succumb to it. I don't need to buy into it. I don't need to believe this about myself. As strong as the conditioning might be, I'm no good, I can't do it, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Sometimes we can withstand. We can endure. We can develop this tremendous stamina. And in fact, the warrior energy is the energy of stamina. Can you endure? What is your burden to bear? We can a little bit at times, and at other times we can a lot. And it's our, it's our task, it's our purpose, it's our, it's our challenge as a yogi to play that edge. How much stamina do I really have right now? To not give in at the first whiff of pain or unpleasantness, but to really look. Play the edge. One of the skills of the spiritual warrior is this firm determination. You know, like Nancy used to say, just say no. <laughs> just say no. This state of mind is kind of invading and coming in. No. 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 It's not the no of aversion, it's the no of wisdom that says, if I let this in, if I drop my guard, if I waver in my mindfulness, I'm going under. And we've been there before, we know it, we, we know that path really well. And so we just say no, that kind of determination, stamina. Now. I must confess, in my practice, I thought stamina was the goal. I suffered a lot unnecessarily. Because we can endure a lot. I, but it's not always wise and balanced to do that. I'll give you an example. I was in, when I went to Burma first, um, the schedule is an hour sit, an hour walk, one after another. Well, I thought if sitting an hour was good, sitting an hour and a half must be better. So I put myself on, I got an agenda to sit longer. And I sat for an hour and a half. And then I, when I could do that, I sat for two hours. And then when I could do that, I sat for two and a half. And I just kept inching my way up longer and longer sittings. And of course, as I did, the pain got more and more excruciating. <laughs> and 
I could do it. You know, three hours, four hours, four and a half hours. And I was going to Upandita, and I was reporting in exquisite detail the multifarious variations of pain. It's just unbelievable how exquisite you can detail the kind of pain that you experience. And after a couple of weeks of this, you know, listening every day, always, Upandita says to me one day, he says, you know why you have so much pain? I said, no, why? He said, you sit too long. <laughs> it, was his, it was his polite way of saying, get off this kick. I mean, we're not asking you to endure that kind of pain. That, the, Buddha, the Bodhisattva tried that and found out that's not the way. You might have to endure some pain, but you don't have to kind of magnify it. You don't have to exacerbate it. Just sit for the hour. Walk for the hour. Sit for another hour. I heard that. I didn't sit for an hour again, for more than an hour, ever, after that. A few times, but not because I was striving, just because it happened. Finding balance. Not getting so caught in warrior mode that we overlook how gentle, how quiet, how still warriors can be. The Buddha said of this path, the man or woman may conquer a million enemies or others in battle, but one who conquers himself or herself is the greatest of conquerors. When we can claim our minds, neighborhood, as safe to be, when we can really see that our mind is tame enough to be at ease with, to be peaceful. The third right effort is the effort to develop wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. To generate wholesome qualities of mind that aren't yet there. To develop metta when there's no metta to develop compassion when there's no compassion, to develop uh, awareness when there's no awareness, to develop understanding when there's no understanding, to, to, to develop stillness when there's no stillness. Just being here among spiritual friends puts the mind in that place of being more receptive, more fertile ground, more creative, really, in cultivating these wholesome mental states. Delgo Kensei Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher of the last century, he said, a crystal takes on the color upon which it is placed, whether white, yellow, red, or black. Likewise, the people you spend your time with 
whether their influence is good or bad will make a huge difference to the direction your life and practice takes. Spending your time with spiritual friends will fill you with love for all beings and help you to see how negative attachment and hatred really are. Being with such friends, following their example, will naturally imbue you with their good qualities, just as all the birds flying around a golden mountain are bathed in its golden radiance. Putting yourself in the presence of others on the path. Automatically cultivates, engenders, brings within us states of mind, wholesome states of mind, not yet arisen. There are two elements to this right effort that are important to acknowledge. And the first is the faith or the confidence, really, that these teachings of liberation, the Buddhist teachings of liberation, living in harmony, calming the mind, seeing the way things are, to have some faith or some confidence that they do lead to happiness, that if practiced, they will lead to happiness. Without that understanding, why would we do, why would we make all this effort? And so we do have that understanding. We do have that to a degree. But to acknowledge it, to bring that understanding into our consciousness can further encourage us in practicing and cultivating wholesome mental states. And the second element of this effort, which is important also to acknowledge, is to is to begin to get a glimpse of the immensity of time, past conditioning, and time, future unfolding that we're looking at. The mind has been going down this track for millennia, just for infinite amount of time. And now, in this lifetime, we have the opportunity. We, we, we hear the teachings that say, you know what? You don't have to keep going down that path. You can turn the momentum of the mind around and begin disentangling the mind from suffering. If we have been going down and digging this rut in our mind for millennia, I mean just eons, lifetime upon lifetime, let's not be too arrogant or too demanding or too ambitious in expecting the Dharma to perform for us in kind of, uh, you know, weekend retreat or uh, a month-long retreat. But let's, let's, let's really look at the immensity of what it is we're attempting to do here. Turn the momentum of the mind around. Okay. The third right effort is to develop wholesome mental states not yet arisen. That's the immediate task. That's just, in one moment, it's just, can we be a little more loving, a little more tolerant, 
a little calmer, a little more patient. In that moment, we've turned the momentum of the mind around. That's all we can do. One moment after another. Carlos Castaneda was taught by Don Juan <clears throat> about this very practice of right effort. He said, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. So what are we emphasizing as yogis? What We're doing the work. What are we emphasizing? Faith, understanding, confidence, being clear about our aspiration, you know, the direction that we're going. We're going towards disentangling the mind. That's our aspiration. That's the direction. We're not yet there. We haven't realized it fully. A little bit, maybe, but not yet fully. Can we have confidence in the direction even if we haven't seen or reached the goal? Because much of practice is just that. Clear about the direction, the goal's not yet in sight. You know the uh, space shuttle that we send up to the space station? You know, it takes off from Florida, and they've plotted out the uh, trajectory and the speed and how long it's going to take, and off it goes. Its aspiration is to reach the space station, right? And, you know, they make mid-course corrections, and 98% and of the time, the space shuttle is off course. 98% of the time. And yet, it gets there. Something like practice. 98% <laughs> of the time, we're lost in wandering and confusion and bewilderment and, you know, indulging in one thing or another. And yet, even in these few days of the retreat, as difficult and as challenging and as frustrating as it might have been, I know you can all see. The mind's a little clearer, the body's a little calmer, beginning to open a little bit. Off course, 98% of the time, but we're getting there. To the clarity, the understanding, the openness, the stamina, the resilience that comes with the awakened mind. So often in practice, we we make the effort, this third right effort, to cultivate wholesome mental states not yet arisen, 
every moment of trying to be mindful is planting a seed of awareness. Just planting a seed, planting a seed, planting a seed. Sometimes the seed lands in fertile soil and we're mindful for a while. Sometimes the seed lands on hard rock and it doesn't sprout and we're not mindful. And we're gone. We're lost in a train of thought. And then somewhere in that train of thought, plop, without any intention, without even knowing we were lost, plop, we're back. What happened? You didn't know you were lost? You didn't make an intention? You didn't try to be more mindful? You were gone, lost, fantasy. And yet, came back. We could say, you forgot the Dharma, but the Dharma didn't forget you. One of those seeds sprouted. One of those seeds that you planted somewhere in the past woke up. Can we keep planting seeds even in a drought? Even if we're walking on bare, hard rock as practice often feels like? Dry, brittle, nothing special happening. Keep planting the seeds. That takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of understanding of what it is we're doing with this practice. I know there's a forthright effort here somewhere. <laughs> Better get to it. And it's important, too. I, <laughs> I want to mention this one, forthright effort. The forthright effort is to nourish and bring to fruition the wholesome mental states that have already arisen. This is really important because we have to begin to acknowledge when wholesome mental states have already arisen and not keep striving and pushing and struggling to be mindful when we're already present, when we're already aware, already in a wholesome state of mind. And we often miss wholesome states of mind. I, I, I like to encourage yogis on retreat to Acknowledge their blessings just on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment, you know. We're well-fed, reasonably healthy, it's quiet, we have the opportunity to practice, we're among friends, supportive friends, we have the teachings available to us, and somebody does the cooking. (laughs) Hey, wow, that's great. Doesn't that feel good? That's a wholesome state of mind. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Acknowledge that. Because that's it. I mean, what else is there to look for? When you really acknowledge, this is the way it is right now. 
Do you have to keep struggling to try to be more mindful of right now? We don't have to kind of find the breath in the middle of that. We're already there. We're already present with the way things are, and it's okay. Huh. Now, the mind can wander away from that just as well as it can wander away from anything else. But when we bring our attention to the wholesome states of mind that already exist, we see how nothing special they really are. You know, we, we, I hope you're not looking for neon lights and bright flashes. You know, enlightenment, you have arrived, or entering Nibbana, or um, entering wholesome mental state, whatever, whatever it is you're looking for. Finally, you've hit mindfulnessville. No, it's, it, it doesn't happen that way. It's more like if you're not struggling, and you're not frustrated, and you're not disappointed, and you're not ambitious, that's wholesome. Oh. When we begin to acknowledge wholesome states of mind, we begin to see how subtle the effort is to sustain it. We don't really need to pump it up even more. That's being caught in technique or perfectionism or uh, looking for some particular experience, striving. And yet, we often do get caught in over-efforting. It's important to begin to recognize how subtle. I'll show you how subtle. You're sitting now. Feel the contact of your butt on your cushion. Or for the chair or the wherever. Feel that? Did that take a lot of effort? Did you have to struggle to do that? Was it really torturous somehow? It's not. It's just that it's just it's just that subtle. It it does need to be precise. Your attention needs to be precise, but you don't need a lot of effort. My father used to work on uh, microwave transmitters. You know, these up on the mountains, they put these big ear things and they shoot a, a beam of energy to another one on another mountain 50 miles away or something. And he asked me one time, he says, you know how much energy is used to emit that beam from one to another? And I thought, oh, geez, must be tons. Must just be really pumping it out. He said some ridiculous thing like half a watt. It's like nothing. I mean, here's a hundred watt bulb. You know, it's like nothing. Well, that's how much, that's how much. They work because they're so precise. They're aimed exactly where they want to be going. 
if our attention is that precise, pointing at the present moment's experience, very little energy, effort, is really needed. So begin to acknowledge mental states, wholesome mental states that have already risen. Nourish them, nurture them, allow them to be there. Let them be okay, just like that, without looking for something special. How we understand our practice makes a huge difference. How we understand effort in practice makes a huge difference. Being both steadfast, resilient, with stamina, when necessary, and very gentle, very precise, very subtle, when necessary. Let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Jamgong Kantru said of effort in practice, Butter can be made by churning milk because the fat is already present in the milk. No one has ever made butter by churning water. A gold digger looks for gold in rocks, not in wood. In just the same way, striving to attain Buddhahood makes sense because Buddha nature is inherent in all sentient beings. Were it not for that potential, any such effort would be a waste of time. Striving to attain Buddhahood makes sense because Buddha nature is inherent in all sentient beings. So thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.